You may be seated. Good morning, Church on the Rock. How are we doing today? Great, great, great. Merry Christmas. Merry, Merry Christmas. Christmas is my favorite time of year. And I know a lot of people think that the 12 days of Christmas are the 12 days leading up to Christmas. But tradition holds that Christmas is actually the first of the 12 days. So if you're going through a little bit of Christmas withdrawal like the people in my household, y'all, we're just getting started. We got 11, 10 more days of this thing. I'm pumped. Merry, Merry Christmas. We were going to celebrate till January 6th. So, yeah, amen. <laughs> uh, before we get started, though, I need to apologize. I, uh, it was about this time last year, the last weekend of the year, Pastor John invited me to come up and speak. And uh, part of what the Lord had laid on my heart was a portion of Paul's letter to the Ephesians, Ephesians chapter 6. And in that context, what Paul is talking about is protecting yourself and preparing yourself for spiritual warfare. He says, we do not fight against flesh and blood, but against powers of darkness. And he tells us to pick up and put on all of the armor of God, the helmet of salvation, all the stuff, right? And I, and I was talking about this in the sense of, you know, I kind of pulled the room and I asked who had a great 2019, like whose year was just wonderful. It was about half the room. Uh, if any of you were, were here that weekend, I don't know if you remember or not, it's been a year. But then the other half of the room raised their hand to the next question, which was, who is ready for 2019 to be over? And who's ready for something better in 2020? And again, half the room, yeah, you're getting to see, you're already getting where I'm going here. And half the room raised their hand. And so I felt like what the Lord was telling me that um, specifically what Paul says there, he says, having done all to stand, stand. Because I felt like the Lord was telling us that no matter what the year has given us, whether it was good, whether it was bad, that our faith, we've been preparing, we've been learning, we've been studying, we've been being trained up in the word and learning what God has for us. And all we need to do now is to stand, regardless of what the enemy throws at us, regardless of what that new year came, would, would bring, I felt like the Lord was telling me that I needed to tell you to get ready to stand. And I'm very sorry about that. Because apparently the, the year that came was absolutely crazy. Now, I'm not saying like it's my fault the coronavirus happened. But I'm thinking like maybe if I hadn't have listened to the Lord and just kind of kept that part quiet, like didn't speak it into existence, maybe it wouldn't have been quite as crazy. But so I just wanted to apologize. Hopefully it will not be the same this year. But like, I mean, what a year it was, right? I mean, just absolutely crazy. It wasn't all bad. There were a lot of bad things, but it wasn't all bad, but it was just, it was crazy, you know? Some of us got a little bit of time off of work or at least time kind of out of the grind of the office. Some of us, our jobs became more busy and crazy than ever. Some of us, our, our jobs even became possibly more dangerous uh, than ever before. It's just it's been a crazy year. It's the only word I can think of to describe what we've all been through this last 365 days, from the wildfires to the virus to elections, whatever, it has just been crazy. And so this year, what I wanted to kind of encourage you with, what I felt like the Lord was telling me is that we needed to talk about hope. Because hope can be a beacon of light in a very, very dark time. But that word hope is, is interesting, especially how we use it today in our culture. We can use, we throw around the word hope for all sorts of stuff, right? Like, I hope 
that the Steelers can get out of this funk and start winning football games again, right? Like, that doesn't really affect me in any way other than just my peace of mind, and I like to root for the Steelers. But it's not like a big thing. Uh, some of us may be hoping that the McRib becomes a permanent item on the McDonald's menu, right? Um, but then there's, you know, heavier things, deeper things that we hope for. Maybe you're hoping to get out of this financial situation that you're in and get into something better. Maybe you're hoping for a relationship in your family to be restored. Maybe you're hoping for a healing. So we have all of these levels, all of these severities of hope, but ultimately we mean the same thing when we say that, right? Like we're, when we hope, when we say that we're hoping for something, we are trying to keep an optimistic state of mind as we wade through the difficulties and uncertainties of our life, right? Like the circum we look at the circumstances, we see them all broken, and we try to look at the the best possible outcome. Right? That's hope to us today. You know, I'm a very optimistic person by nature. I joke around with people and I say that God wanted me to be optimistic so bad that he made my blood type be positive. I I love to look at the silver lining. You know, things, there's never a bad situation with me. My wife, she's not quite as optimistic as me, and a lot of times that can cause us uh, to bump heads. But, you know, optimism is part of who I am. I can, I can usually find a silver lining in any circumstance. The issue, though, as Christians, we can't just think of hope in the way that anyone in the year 2020 in the United States of America would understand hope, right? Because hope is a biblical principle. In fact, the Bible tells us it's a gift from God is what hope is. And so we as Christians, to understand hope, we have to look through the lens of Scripture to really get a better grasp of what hope means for us and how it can help us. So that's what we're going to do today. We're going to look at the Scripture and see what the Bible has to say about hope and compare that to how we understand hope today. So, uh, first of all, the Bible was not written in English, right? Like, Jesus wasn't preaching from the King James. Like, that's not how it works. The Bible was written in an ancient language, an- ancient languages, in fact, three different languages, none of which are still spoken on the earth in that form, okay? So, these are ancient languages, and what we do is our people that are a lot smarter than me, who have a lot more degrees than me, who have studied the scriptures for a lot longer than me, they take the original text in their original languages and try their best to translate them into English. But sometimes when you're going from language to language, things can kind of get lost, right? Like there are things that we say in English that if you're trying to translate them into Spanish, there isn't a way to say that. And vice versa, right? There are just things, sayings, uh, colloquial, colloquial, you know what I'm trying to say. I can't even say the word. But um, there are things that we we struggle to communicate. And that's not even true from language to language. That's just true from decade to decade or generation to generation, right? Like there are words and phrases that the younger generations are using. It's, it, it literally is a completely different language. I don't know if you guys have looked up like Gen Z lingo, it's very confusing, and it's very hard to understand. For instance, if I looked over at these kids over here, and I say, I do it for the bread, they're gonna, they know what I'm talking about. But if I look to some of the more seasoned believers over here, 
and I say, I do it for the bread, you're probably thinking, oh, he's talking about going to eat at Texas Roadhouse. That's what he's, he, he goes there. You know, I don't really like steak all that much, so I go there for, I do it for the bread, right? That's what I, I wait in the long line, and I, but that's not what the kids mean. What, kids, what do I mean when I say that? I'm doing it for the money, right? They, they understand that I am, my actions are solely dedicated to the accruement of wealth. Like, that's what, that's what I'm saying. And that's just English, right? Imagine trying to translate a 2,000-year-old text in a language that isn't even spoken anymore into English. That's, it's a difficult task. And so we, I won't say that we lose some things, but I certainly do think that we miss some things sometimes. And not to say that, you know, this Bible like I said, someone a lot smarter than me who has a lot more schooling than me, they studied this and translated this, and they did a good job. And when we read this in English, the Holy Spirit absolutely can explain to us what he means, right? Like if there's even things that get lost in translation, the Holy Spirit has the power to reveal things to us. That's why this is the living word of God, right? It's not just words on a page. It's, it's breathed by God. And so the Holy Spirit absolutely can inspire us and, and educate us without any special anything, right? Like you don't have to go to Bible school in order to read the Bible. You don't have to have a master's degree in theology in order to understand the scriptures. However, on the other hand, we st- any career, any ex- expertise requires study, right? It requires practice. If you're a teacher, you go to school to learn how to teach. Not that anybody can't teach, but we want to be better, right? Like, if I need brain surgery, I don't want just anybody cutting my skull open. I want someone who has studied and practiced and looked and trained for years and years and years. The longer, the better, right? And so when it comes to the scriptures, I think that it is beneficial to us to look deeper than just our English translations, right? I think it's, it is beneficial that we dig into the original languages, that we dig into possibly cultural context, historical context, literary contexts, right? Because all of those things can help enrich our understanding of the Bible. And so that's what we're going to do today. I want to look at hope and what it means through the lens of Scripture. What did the biblical writers mean when they talked about hope? Okay? So let's go ahead and open up our Bibles to Hosea chapter 2. We're going to be there in just a minute. Just a minute. But um, it's important for us. You know, uh, John Walton, he's a great, great biblical scholar. You should read his books. There's a lot of them, and they're really dense, but they're really good. He says this. He says, the Bible was written for us, not to us. Okay? And it's it's an important distinction. It sounds you know, what's, what's the difference there? But really think about it. Like when I order a Christmas present for my wife, it's for her, but I don't address it to her because I don't want her to open it before Christmas, right? So I get it mailed to me. It's, it's sent to me, but it's for her. Well, that's the same thing with Scripture. It was not written with me in mind, right? Like Paul was not writing his letters thinking, Michael Searles is going to read this 2,000 years from now. He, he wasn't thinking that. He was writing to a very specific time and a specific place. Now, the Holy Spirit uses that to speak to us today, so it's definitely for us, and we can glean truth from it, but it wasn't written to us. And so we need to make sure that we are reading Scripture in light of that. 
Um, so Hosea, this is my one one of, if not my absolute favorite story in all of Scripture. This is a story, and if you if you're not familiar with the book of Hosea, I'm going to give you kind of a rundown real quick. So Hosea gets married to a prostitute. She cheats on him repeatedly. She has a number of children that the Bible it's very unclear who the father is. Like Hosea is raising these kids, and he's not even 100% sure they're his biological children because the text tells us that it could be anybody, right? And like a sucker, this guy still continues to take her back, and he goes and, like, supports her financially, bails her out financially a number of times, repeatedly brings her back, brings her back, brings her back, and she keeps on cheating with him, or cheating on him, rather. Now... This doesn't sound really like a story of hope, right? Because you're thinking like, man, Hosea, like I don't, I don't like that at all for him. Like that's the worst. But see, here's the problem. We're identifying with the wrong person in the story. See, narrative as a literary tool, uh, it helps us to learn things very easily. Our brains are kind of hardwired for stories, right? That's why like, Children enjoy stories. People in their deathbed enjoy a good story. That's why movies and TV are such a big part of our culture. Because he, and, and not just our culture, but cultures across the world and across time. Stories are just fun, right? Our, our brains are hardwired for them. And part of the reason why stories are so interesting is that it allows us to kind of insert ourselves into a situation that maybe we're not uh, we would never actually get to experience. You know, that's why video games are so cool. Because, like, it gives me the chance to be Patrick Mahomes, right? Like, I can go and throw touchdowns. I'll never be able to do that in real life. I'm five foot six. Like, it's just not going to happen. But I can pretend like I'm doing that, right? And that's what stories do. It helps us. To, we kind of inject ourselves into the story. And oftentimes, we put ourselves in the role of who? The hero, the protagonist, right? The main character, because it's fun to be the good guy, right? It's, it's fun and it makes us feel good about ourselves. We love it when the good guy wins because we feel like we're winning. The problem with that practice in reference to Scripture is that almost every single time when there's a story in the Bible, a narrative in the Bible, I'm not supposed to be the good guy. When Jesus is burning up the Pharisees, and I'm over here like, yeah, Jesus, get him. Like, that's wrong. I'm not doing it right if, if I'm rooting on Jesus. Because the thing is, I'm the Pharisee in this scenario. I'm the, the church. I'm the Christian. I'm the person who's claiming to be holy, and yet I'm falling short of what someone who's trying to be like Jesus is doing. And that's what Jesus is trying to do. He's trying to fix behavior in the holy people, right? Like, Jesus never got on to sinners. Jesus was only ever loving to sinners. Read the Gospels. It's true. He never yelled or got on to anyone. He put himself in the line of fire for sinners. But when it came to the, the, the holy people, the religious people, that's when he would get fiery and start burning people up, right? And that's us. If you're a member of the body of Christ, we need to identify as the bad guy because we don't learn anything being the good guy all the time, right? Like Paul, he gives Timothy a list of four things the Bible is good for. It's meant for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. Nowhere on that list is making me feel like the hero, right? 
So when we read scripture, we need to be careful who we identify with. Because if we're always identifying as the hero, we're going to miss it, right? And so going back to Hosea, if we read Hosea from Hosea's point of view, if I think that I'm Hosea in this story, this story stinks. It's the absolute worst. But if I realign my expectations properly to read the scriptures, I realize I'm not Hosea. I'm Gomer. I'm the prostitute. I'm not the faithful prophet of God. I'm the dirty sinner. I'm not the one that has to over and over and over again, even though she turned her back on me, go and rescue my wife. I'm the one that's being rescued, right? And that is why this story is one of my absolute favorites, because I know in my life there are so many times that I have been unfaithful to God, that I have walked away from God, that I have done the exact opposite of what he has told me to do. And yet, every time, he still brings me back. He still welcomes me back with open arms. When you're Hosea, this story stinks. When you're Gomer, this is the best story you've ever read. Because you know that there is a God that loves you no matter what. No matter what. So let's go ahead and dive right into this this story. So we're going to pick up in chapter 2. Uh, so prior to this, all that stuff has gone on, right? Uh, Gomer has cheated. They've had some children. Uh, Hosea has rescued her back. And now God is, is revealing what all that was for. Basically, Gomer is a symbol for the nation of Israel. Israel had served other gods, had given their hearts to other lovers, and yet God is still willing to welcome her back. So here's where we are. Uh, chapter 2, verses starting in verse 14. But then I will win her back once again. I will lead her into the desert and speak tenderly to her there. I will return her vineyards to her and transform the valley of trouble. Uh, this is the New Living Translation. Your Bibles might say the valley of um, Achor into a gateway of hope. She will give herself to me there as she did long ago when she was young, when I freed her from her captivity in Egypt. When that day comes, says the Lord, you will call me my husband instead of my master. O Israel, I will wipe the many names of Baal from your lips, and you will never mention them again. So a little bit of context uh, to the situation. So there's this, this deity. It's a Canaanite false god named Baal, right? It was the guy who Elijah fought against, and nine times out of ten, if Israel was unfaithful to God, guess who they were unfaithful with? This guy. Okay, I mean, not a real person, a, a false, fake God, a statue. But it was Israel's Achilles heel. And in fact, earlier in chapter 2, uh, in verse 8, God says that he's given Israel all of these gifts, right? He lists grain, wine, olive oil, gold, and silver. He's given all of these things to Israel as a gift to bless them. And then Israel has taken those gifts and turned around and offered them to Baal instead of God, right? So, I mean, this is like cheating at its worst. It's not just being unfaithful, but like spending the money that your husband gives you to take your lover out to dinner, right? Like this is what this is. And so um, God is saying, though, that uh, this is really, really cool. So let's look here. So Baal, we understand the Canaanite deity. And he says in verse 16, when the day comes, says the Lord, you will call me 
my husband instead of my master. That word right there in the, if you were, if we were reading it in the original Hebrew, where it says, instead of my master, it would say, instead of my Baal. Because that word, that name, is actually just a Hebrew word. That's why it's, it's literally copy and pasted from the Hebrew into the English, English language. That's why we don't say, we don't refer to the deity as master. We refer to it as Baal because it's a name. It's a proper noun, right? This is why we pronounce it Baal and not Baal because that would be an English reading of it. But this is not an English word. It's a, it's a Hebrew word. So this word uh, Baal, it means Lord or master, and connotatively, it can also mean possessor, owner, or obtainer. Okay, so this idea, the name of this God paints a picture of this God, at little g, God, as a very tyrannical leader. This is one that you have to be afraid of or else, right? Not the way we fear our God as a, in a sign of reverence, but this is like literally we have to serve this God or else, Right? He is our master, our overseer, our, our um, slave driver, imagine. right? So connotatively, just trying to get you to think about how the people would have thought of Baal in this day. And so that's the word that he uses there uh, in verse 16. And he says, uh, but also it can be, this is really interesting though, it can also be used to, as the word husband. Okay, so Baal, a, a woman would have referred to her husband uh, in two possible ways. One is Baal, my Lord, or my master. The other, which is used earlier in verse 16, is the word Ishi in Hebrew, which directly translated means my man. All right? My man. My, and both of those words mean husband, and they would have used both. But they have two different connotations, right? Baal would be much more subservient, much more cold, much more distant, much more formal, whereas Ishii would be used in a more healthy relationship. Ishii has connotations of uh, intimacy, closeness, maybe even partnership, right? So this is what God is saying. In the middle of their, serve, their worship of Baal, God is saying, hey, you're, no, you're going to call me my husband, my man, my Ishii, and no longer my Baal. And God is specifically using that word to draw Israel's attention to their sin, to their worship of Baal. You see what I mean here? And what God is doing is he is highlighting the differences between Baal and Yahweh. Baal expects you to bow your knee and serve him and fear him. Yahweh, our God, expects us to accept his love and adoration, and to be close, and to be intimate with. That's the difference here. And that is so like God. To, even in his name, and the titles that he uses for himself, he is highlighting how much he loves us and cares for us, rather than wants to punish us. And even more so in that exact same passage, and I'm, I love this passage, it's, there's so much here. I, I originally wanted to kind of go over the whole book of Hosea, but I realized that would take like seven Sundays, and I don't think Pastor John's going to let me do that. So instead, we're just going to stick to this passage. So here we are, we're seeing the difference between Baal and God, Yahweh, the God of Israel. And so if we take a step back, 
we can see God foreshadowing this here. Look at verse 15. This is fascinating. He says, I will return her vineyards to her and transform the valley of trouble into a gateway of hope. So here we are. That's what we're looking for, right? We're trying to understand what the Bible has to say about hope. Well, the valley of trouble, he's turning the valley of trouble, or some your Bible might say the valley of Achor, into a, a gateway of hope. To a Hebrew audience in the ancient Near East, they would have immediately, they would have seen that, that, that phrase valley of trouble or valley of Achor and known exactly what God was referencing. How many of us know what happened, by show of hands, in the valley of Achor? I didn't until I looked it up, okay? <laughs> so it's not, it's not a very, uh, it's not triggered in our minds. But to the original audience, they would have uh, immediately been brought back to Joshua, the book of Joshua, chapter 7, okay? So just get a quick rundown of the story so that you guys can remember it. I know you know the story. But they had just defeated Jericho, okay? The walls have fallen down. They're marching through, and God tells them to destroy everything, Right? desecrate it all. Don't take anything with you. This city belongs to me. Let it be, right? And everybody listens except one guy, Achan, right? He goes and he steals silver and robes and all this stuff. He's like, ah, oh, they're not going to use it. They're all dead. Like, I'm going to take it with me. And he takes it and he hides it. So then Israel goes to their next victim, the next city on the list of cities they need to conquer to, to obtain the promised land. And it's a small town. It's going to be easy. Like, there's no way that this town can defeat them. They could do this in their sleep, right? So they head up to the town, and what happens? They get driven back. They lose. And Joshua is completely puzzled. God, you told us to come here. You told us to, to take the promised land. Why is this happening? And God says, well, you guys broke the deal, right? You didn't obey me. You weren't obedient. You were unfaithful to me. And so that is what happened. I removed my hand of protection from you. So uh, Joshua calls the entire nation of Israel out, and he starts going one by one by one through the, through the tribes and through the families. And he finally he picks out Achan, and Achan admits to it. He's like, yeah, I stole the stuff. This is where it is. You can, you can have it back. You can do whatever you want with it. But as punishment for his unfaithfulness, what happens? He gets killed, right? They stone him. And so immediately when the audience of Hosea hears the words Valley of Achor or translated Valley of Trouble, they know exactly the sin that he's talking about. They understand the unfaithfulness to the orders and the will of God. And so they're drawn back to that place. And what God says is, I am going to take this Valley of Trouble and turn it into a gateway of hope or a doorway of hope. So this, this valley... The location of their punishment, oh, and that's, that's the thing. All of that happened in the Valley of Achor. So that's why the, the line would have been drawn. And so they know, they're realizing the place of my punishment for my unfaithfulness to God, God is now taking that and turning it in to a doorway of hope. And I think it's interesting that he uses the phrase gateway or, or doorway because a doorway is useless unless we use it, right? Like a door, there's, there's no point in having a door in my house unless I use that door. It does me no good unless I use it. And so God isn't saying that I'm turning your valley of trouble into hope. 
He's saying, I'm turning that value of trouble into an avenue for you to hope. But we have to step through it. But what does it mean? What does it mean to hope? Right? That's the whole question we've been kind of circling around here. And this is what it says. So there are two main words that the Hebrew Bible uses for hope. And they both mean kind of the same thing. And that word, that it means to wait. So what we translate as hope, which again has a connotation of optimism and all of that good stuff, right? In the, in the scriptures, it literally just means to wait. And that stinks. Who likes waiting? Waiting is the worst. I hate to wait, right? I hate waiting for Christmas. I hate waiting for a red light. I hate waiting for my food to get there at the restaurant. I hate waiting in the drive-thru line at Chick-fil-A, but I still do it every time. I hate waiting. But that's what hope is in the Bible. And again, there's two words. The first word is yachal, and that's like in the story of Noah and the ark. Once the waters begin to recede, Noah has to yachal for weeks. He has to wait for those waters to recede. The second one, though, and the, which is used here in, in Hosea, is kava, okay? And it also means to wait, but it has a bit of a different connotation. So it's from the root word kav, which we would translate as cord, okay? So here, here's a, a bungee cord, right? And if I pull on this cord, there's tension that's created, right? There's this kind of there's tension and pulling and, and honestly an anticipation about how this tension is going to be resolved, right? And this tension can be resolved in two ways, one of two ways. One, me as the causer of the tension, I can just ease off and let it go, and then the waiting's done, right? What is the other way that the tension can be released? If the cord breaks, and that's not going to be pleasant for anybody, right? And I think that's very poignant, especially here what, what Hosea is talking about, that he didn't use, use the word yechal, but he used the word kava, to wait, to build anticipation. And in our lives, just because of the human experience, there is always two outcomes to waiting for a problem to be solved. Either we stand firm and we wait and we wait and we wait and eventually it is resolved or we wait and we wait and we wait and the situation breaks us, right? We have two choices and it is a choice and that's what biblical hope is. Biblical hope is not based on circumstances. Biblical hope is not based on optimism. Biblical hope is a choice to wait and wait and wait and never stop waiting until the tension is gone. But how does the tension get solved? How does the kava end? How does it happen? Well, I'll tell you how it happens. If we look in Isaiah chapter 8, verse 17, it says this, at this moment, the Lord is hiding his face from, is uh, from Israel, so I will hope or wait or kava for him. So during this time, in the periods of the prophets, Israel is, sleep is slipping deeper and deeper and deeper into sin and unfaithfulness to God, right? And Isaiah says, he looks around him, and these circumstances are never going to get better. He knows that they're not going to get better because God has told him 
that there's going to be an exile, right? Like, the Israel is going to be taken over and defeated. And so, Isaiah, looking at the circumstances, there is no way out of this that is good. He has no reason to be optimistic. But what does he say? I will wait or hope for God. In biblical hope, the only hope we have in those dark times is God himself. He is our hope. He is what we are waiting on. When that tension begins to build, when that thing is going on, if we can look to him, don't look at our circumstances, don't look at how hard things are, but if we can turn our eyes to look upon him, that is where our hope comes from, right? The same thing is, uh, the same sentiment is in the book of Psalms. There's 40 different times that these words are used throughout the book of Psalms to describe waiting. And almost every single time, what that person is waiting for is God, right? In Psalm chapter 130, it says, I kavah, or I wait, or I hope for the Lord, and let Israel yachal for the Lord, wait for the Lord, because he is loyal and will redeem Israel from its sins. See, Hosea had no reason to hope in his circumstances. Israel was being invaded and taken over by uh, nations left and right, being oppressed by all these foreign nations. His wife was cheating on him, getting pregnant by other men, most likely. And yet, his hope was not in his circumstances. His hope remained. His wait, what he was waiting for was the solution for his problem, which was going to come from God. And it's interesting, in that passage that we read, he says, she will give herself to me there, this is verse 15, as, long as, she, as she did long ago when she was young, when I freed her from her captivity in Egypt. So what Hosea is doing is he's looking back on who God is. He's looking back on what God has done And he's then looking forward to knowing that the same God that solved that problem is in charge of my life now, right? The way that God saved Israel from slavery was surprising. Nobody expected it. It was was almost unpredictable the way it was so surprising for the people of Israel, right? And that same surprising grace, that same surprising solution is just waiting for us. And that is the ticket, guys. That's what biblical hope is all about. It's looking past and seeing God's character, seeing who he is and what he's done in the past, and then looking forward and knowing that at any moment God is capable of doing that for me. That same sentiment it moves into the New Testament. You know, the early church had... Um, a very similar view of hope, they viewed Jesus' life, death, and resurrection as God's surprising response to our sin and depravity, right? We are unfaithful to God. We sin. We turn our back on him, right? I'm not alone in this, right? We all do it. We, 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 we do things we know are against the character of God, and the way that God responds rather than punishment is what? He sends his son his perfect, sinless son, not just to come and teach us, but to come and die for us, right? And then all throughout the rest of the the New Testament, you've got Paul and Peter and the author of Hebrews, and they talk about hope as if it's alive, okay? Hope is not a 
a feeling can't be alive, right? A, A living hope, our living hope is the one seated at the right hand of the Father, right? Our hope is not a a, a good outlook on things. It's not hoping that things work out. It's taking our eyes off of our circumstances and not worrying about the outcome and knowing that the creator of the universe who loves us and died for us is on our side and he has the power to do whatever he wants to do. So we look back on what he has done knowing that we can look forward with confidence and knowing that it's all going to work out for our good, right? It may not happen in this life, but for believers, for those of us who are part and been grafted into the body of Christ, we know that eventually, no matter what, it's going to be good. And we have that confidence because we can look back at the character of God because God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And if we know that what he did back then, he can do again today, that is what we are waiting for. That is what our hope is based on. It's not based on my money. It's not based on my work ethic. It's not based on our government, right? It's based on him. So as the band comes on up, I I, want to ask you guys a question. Some of us here, well, all of us here, have had quite a year, right? This year has been what none of us could have predicted. And there are situations on top, besides everything that happened in 2020, there are things that we've been hoping for, situations that we've been waiting on that maybe haven't been concluded. Or maybe you've lost hope. Maybe over the the years and years and years, the things that you were waiting for, the, the hope that you had, it's been lost. You've just given up on hoping. I believe that the Lord this morning wants to tell you that that the hope that you had has never gone anywhere because hope is not a feeling. Hope is not optimism. Hope is Jesus. Our hope has never gone anywhere. It's whether or not we have chosen to keep our eyes on it. When that tension comes, when life begins to pull, when, when things start to get hard and you want to break and you want to give up, we know that we can look up and keep our eyes focused on our Father who loves us more than anything. You know, my wife and I, for those of you who, who know our story or who were here last year when I spoke, my wife and I, we have been going through a very difficult time. Uh, We've been married for eight years, and for the vast majority of those years, we've struggled with infertility. We want children so, so bad. And after years and years of trying, we had two miscarriages in one year. It's been a very difficult road. And there have been times and moments when hope has been hard to come by, at least my understanding of hope. But two days ago, we celebrated the birth of of a child who by all laws of science and nature could not have been born. Mary, the mother of Jesus, didn't do the one thing that is required of her to have a child. She had never done it. And yet Jesus was still born. 
And so when I look at my situation, when I look at the path and the journey that my wife and I have been on, I see no hope. I see no optimism, no way to be optimistic. When I look at what the doctors have said, when I look at our history, there's nothing that gives me an optimistic outlook. But when I look back on that holy night in Bethlehem and I see an impossible child born, I know that God can do it again. I know that he's the same, the same God that caused Mary to become pregnant is the same God that I worship. And it's the same God that can plant life inside of my wife at any moment, with or without my help, right? And that's the God we serve. Will you stand with me? I want to invite our prayer team down to the front. And if that's you today, if you are facing an issue, if you are under that tension, if you are under that, that strain and that anticipation for something, it could be something small like a, a new job or a new car. It could be something big like a healing or I, I don't know what it is. But if that's you and you need to either one, strengthen your hope or two, you need to find it again. If that's you, I want to welcome you in just a, a moment to please come down. Let us pray with you. That's why the body of Christ exists so that we can strengthen each other. We are not meant to do it alone. We are not meant to do it by ourselves, right? The eye can't say to the ear, I don't need you. The hand can't say to the foot, I don't need you. We cannot look at each other and say, I don't need your help. I got this. I, I can do it by myself. That's not how we were made. We're, we're pack animals, right? We belong in families. God says that he places the solitary in families. That is the design. And so please come down, let us pray with you. I'll be down here too. If that's you, if you've lost hope, I wanna encourage you that you can take your eyes. Your hope never went anywhere. You didn't lose your hope. You just took your eyes off of it. And we can fix that today with the strength of the Lord. Can I pray with you real quick? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you so much for who you are. God, we thank you for the power that you wield Lord, we thank you that the sovereignty and the control that you have over all of our situations. And right now, Lord, we remember all the things that you've done. We remember all the good things that you've done in Scripture and in our own lives. And we put our eyes on you, and we thank you that you have the power to do it again. And we receive that truth right now in the name of Jesus. Lord, will you strengthen those who have lost hope? Will you, will you encourage those who are still holding on? Will you help us to turn our eyes off of our circumstances and put them in the one place that has the power to change them, and that's upon you. We thank you, Jesus, for who you are and everything you've done and what you are going to do. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen, amen. What a great word. Man, let's give the Lord a hand clap. Thank you, Jesus. Feel confident in him teaching your children? Amen, I would too. You know, we're going to continue with worship. The altar team will be here to pray with you for anything. Don't leave here with any kind of a burden at all. Man, come and agree with somebody. But the one last question, are you 100% sure if you died you'd go to heaven? If you're not sure, don't leave this building. Please. 
And you say, well, how could you ever know you're 100% sure? Well, it starts by having a relationship with God through His Son, Jesus. And that has to happen by you personally asking Christ into your life. God's not going to force His way in. I believe you're here today for a reason, that He possibly been knocking at your heart. And the only way a door will open when He knocks on it is if you open it and allow Him to come into your heart. I did that April 14, 1984. When somebody asked me that question, and I didn't know, I finally raised my hand, I repeated a prayer, I gave God permission to come into my life. And my life changed, it really did. So if you're here today not sure if you'd go to heaven, you've gotten off track, man, just stop over at that cross. We got Norma, we got Terry over there, they'll pray with you, give you some information, because I'm telling you, you'll never find peace. In a bottle, at the end of a joint, you'll only find it through the peace of the Prince of Peace, and that's Jesus. And so... Please allow us to pray with you. We're going to worship one more time here. As we're worshiping, whatever prayer need you is, you can come to the altar to the cross. Otherwise, we'll see you Wednesday night, the last chance this year to come to church. Otherwise, next week. God bless you.